Well, good evening. Welcome to Big Valley Grace. Those of you in the venue, welcome. And those who you, of you who are online, man, thanks for tuning in and uh, being a part of our endeavor to worship the Lord and honor him tonight. It's been a great evening, hasn't it? And I'm so grateful for Tyra Tony to share her, a little bit of her story and the, pic- and the word pictures that she gave. I, boy, it really helps me to understand uh, a wound that isn't healing and continually, continually gets poked. And that was uh, very meaningful to me. I'm grateful for that perspective and helps me to better understand how to pray. And Lori, thank you for your courage to share your story here today. And it's a good night uh, to be here. And I hope in just a few weeks, we're gonna be able to all meet together, that this embargo and this prohibition to gather together is, li- is lifted and we can return back to somewhat of normality and we can meet one another, greet one another and be together as a body of Christ. Look forward to that day. Well, this evening we're gonna be in John chapter eight. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter eight. If you are in the venue, please turn to John chapter eight as well as those of you who may be watching online and we're going to explore this passage of scripture. Whenever I look at a story, it helps me to understand the historical context. And so I want to build this story and prepare us for John chapter 8. This is a unique passage of scripture. If you have a newer translation like the ESV, the NIV, which is what I use, a New American Standard, you're going to notice in John chapter 8, it actually starts in chapter 7 verse 53, it says that this story is not in the original manuscripts or in the oldest manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscript. Uh, We have copies of the original and they go right back into some of the first century, and we have some tremendous reliable text. But in many of the oldest scripts that we have of the book of John, this story is not in the oldest ones. It shows up later on, and so the question is, where in the world did this story come from? Uh, There's actually two stories like this in the Bible. One is in John, here, John chapter 8. Another one is in uh, Mark chapter 16. If you look at the back part of Mark 16, the last part of Mark 16 has is, is been, um, I want to say added, but it stands out as a unique piece of scripture. Now, when you look at John 8, and I remember being in high school, at Modesto High School, I had an English teacher who used this passage to justify that we can't trust the stories of the Bible. Because here's one that it was not in the original, at least the oldest manuscripts, therefore how do we know that any of them really are legit? But those who study and know the Greek better than I know, and I don't know much, but as I study, uh, this is distinctly Johannian, means that it has the fingerprints of John all over it. So when you listen to Pastor Rick speak, and you listen to Pastor Joel speak, and you listen to me speak, we have different styles in how we talk. Uh, we have different mannerisms in how we talk. Uh, Rick will say, here's the deal, right? <laughs> He'll always will say that. And you know when you hear that, or you read it, you know that's coming from Pastor Rick. Uh, I'm not sure what mine is, but we all have our own little quirks. John has his own little quirks, and as you read this section, it has the distinct style of John, which means he uses a lot of the same words, the same sentence structures. Uh, some of the phrases that he uses show up in other passages. There's little doubt that this story is coming from firsthand experience of the Apostle John. There's also some question about where this story actually occurs, because in some of the places where it does show up, It actually shows up in the book of Luke, right around the Passion Week. It shows up in several different places in John, but we've settled in this location. 
Even John MacArthur suggests that maybe this happened in the Passion Week. So we really don't know exactly where it happens, where the story takes place. But as I have studied, it would be my own personal opinion that this story really fits best here. And I'm going to show you why. So this story really begins in John chapter 7. So if you go to John chapter 7, look at verse 1. I'm going to lead you through John chapter 7, and we're going to get into the story here in just a little bit. And I think it helps us understand, because this story is sandwiched between two significant declarations of Jesus. So this feast of the tabernacles was a yearly event. It occurs in October. It's a camp meeting. Any of you ever been to a camp meeting? Do you know what a camp meeting is? If you come from the back east, and it was rare, to, I didn't understand it either until Nancy and I pastored a church in Pennsylvania. Camp meetings are a big deal. They are an historical part of early American history. So not too far from where we were at was what was a place called a camp meeting. It was about 100 acres that somebody bought about 150, maybe 200 years ago. And every year, people gather together in these little tiny cabins that aren't any bigger than about 300 square feet. And families come together. They're hard to get a cabin. But families, year after year, would come to their cabin. And for a week, with their children, they would camp out. And every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, they will worship together. They'll study the word together. They will pray together. They will eat together. And they do that for an entire week. And we had personal friends that we went to college with and invited us to one of these camp meetings. She was like a third generation of her family that would come to this place. And she and her family had moved a long ways away. But wouldn't you know it, in August, they're at the camp meeting. Some of people here at Big Valley have gone to Mount Hermon in a similar way. So the Festival of Tabernacles is a Jewish camp meeting. Jews would travel from all over the world to come to Jerusalem in October and they would make little tents or little booths out of branches and they would camp out for eight days if it was in Jerusalem. And they celebrate the harvest, but it's a week of dedication where they sing together, they worship together in the tabernacle, they eat together, they experience life together, and it builds a, a, a wonderful union of families that share Christ or for them, share Yahweh in common. It's a, glue, it's a glue event for them in terms of community. The significance of it is that they're recalling a time a thousand years earlier when they lived like this. Uh, they were exiled, out, they were pushed out of Egypt, not pushed out, but they fled Egypt to come into the promised land. And they lived in tents for 40 years they saw wonderful displays of God's grace and God's miracles. And so in this week are evidences and remembrances of this great exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. And so it's rehearsed year after year after year after year. Tradition is a good thing. Particularly this kind of tradition. It cements in children's minds who they are before God. They are unique people. And when you look at Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses' encouragement is teach your children these things. Teach them about, uh, so have your home to be so unique that your children ask, dad, why do we do what we do? And you tell them your story. And we, that's what we ought to do as families, that our home should be significantly different 
in terms of how we live, so much so that when your son comes home or your daughter comes home, they say, Daddy, how come we don't watch such and such on TV? Well, son, the reason we don't do that is because it's really not a good program. It doesn't honor Christ. I go over to Billy's house, and Daddy has all sorts of pictures that we look at. Son, that's not what we do. And our home has a scent of Christ in it. So in, 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 in John chapter seven, verse one, camp meeting is about to happen. Jesus doesn't, he initially says, and he, and he, and he prefaces it in, in verse one, he says that they're waiting to kill him. So his brothers are saying, come on, Jesus, let's, you know, if you really wanna become famous, you need to go to this camp meeting where everybody can see all of your miracles and the belief. The brothers didn't believe. In fact, it says that in John chapter seven that even his brothers, even though they were insisting on him to go to Jerusalem for the uh, festival of tabernacles, they didn't really believe that he was the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, I'm not gonna go yet. You go ahead. And when you drop down in, in uh, chapter seven and you look at verse 14, about halfway through the feast, Jesus decides to go to the temple. So the feast is eight days long. So around day three and day four, Jesus moves from Galilee, which is about 60 miles, down into Jerusalem to be a part of this. He's coming in incognito. There's no big fanfare. There's no riding on the donkeys. Nobody is praising the Lord and saying, hail to the king. Nothing. He comes in. And people are even wondering in these early days, where is Jesus? How come he's not showing up? And when he does show up, he sleeps in the garden of uh, uh, Mount of Olives. That's where he would camp out. He'd probably make up a little, uh, little booth from all the branches. And there he would sleep at night. It's one of his favorite places to go. And then early in the morning, the text says, he goes into the temple area. He finds a place in Solomon's porch and begins to teach. And people would begin gum, coming around him, listening to him teach. It would have been an incredible thing to listen to Jesus teach, wouldn't it? And he'd gather a crowd and he would teach. Pretty soon he gets noticed that Jesus is there and he has encounters with the Pharisees in the, uh, from chapter 14, uh, verse 14 down to verse 25. And look at verse 25, it says, at some point, some of the people of Jerusalem are beginning to ask, isn't this a man that they're trying to kill? In fact, as you kind of drop down from this, when you look at verse 32, the Pharisees are hearing the crowd whispering these things and the chief priest and the Pharisees send temple guards to arrest him. I'm building into this. When you get to 37, look at verse 37. It says, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, that would be day seven, just when they're having the final ceremonies, Jesus stands up and look what he says. He is paraphrasing Isaiah 55, verse one, that says, ho, is there anyone out there is thirsty? Come to me and I'll satisfy that thirst. And look what Jesus says. Is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, has said streams of living water will flow from within him. This story of John chapter eight is between two significant declarations. This phrase, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Does that remind you of any other story of Jesus in the New Testament? The woman at the well. Jesus meets a woman, he has an appointment at noon in Samaria. Most Jews don't go to Samaria, but he, by divine appointment, is there at the well. And he says, lady, would you give me something to drink? And then he says, you know what? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for something to drink. And she's saying, how can you get into this well? He says, I, I'm coming to give you water that's everlasting. Oh, give me some of that water. 
Jesus is gonna meet another woman here very soon who is thirsty. She is drinking and sipping out of water. That's bad. And she needs living water. And Jesus is gonna offer it to her in a little bit. When you drop down to chapter eight, verse 12, is the second declaration. And Jesus says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is doing two things as he meets this woman. He's gonna offer her fresh water. And he's gonna call her out of darkness into life. We're gonna meet a woman here in just a little bit who is seeking for things and where she's seeking will never bring satisfaction, will never bring joy. She knows that the man she is with, she doesn't belong to. She knows that she is living a life of shame. She's hoping that her secret will stay hidden. She knows she has no business doing what she's doing. She knows that she's not walking in light. She is walking in darkness. She knows this. And in just a little bit, it's gonna be fully exposed. When Jesus says these two things, these things, there are significant things happening in the tabernacle or the temple at this time. Because when Jesus says, anyone thirsty, I am the living water, there is a ceremony taking place where the Jewish leaders are going down to the pool of Siloam and with a golden, uh, a golden jug, they are dipping out of the pool of Siloam, bringing it back and pouring it out as an offering and remembers about how God provided living water out of the rock. Who's the rock? It's Christ. And they're commemorating this and as they're pouring out the water, Jesus is standing and it says, he loudly exclaims, I am the living water. He who comes to me will never, ever thirst again. And out of him will flow rivers of life. Boy, Jesus brings change into you. Didn't we just hear that in Lori's life? There is a freshness that comes out of us when we meet Jesus. And in verse 12 of chapter eight, Jesus is referencing in the court of the women, there were four large um, lanterns. Now they didn't have electricity. They're filled with oil or kerosene or something. I mean, that was in there. And these things were huge and they lit up the whole temple area. And as in a final ceremony, as they celebrate the lighting of lights, remembering how the pillar of fire guided them throughout the night, they would be dancing and singing. Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. Follow me. I'll bring you out of darkness. It's between these two stories that this story seems to have occurred. So we're gonna look at John chapter eight, verses one through 11 in a different way. I want you to follow along, but I want you not only to read the story, but I want you to see the story. Watch this. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. For whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, 
in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? What sayest thou? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus. Hath no man condemned thee? There's no doubt, even though they, uh, there's some question as to where did it really fit in John 7 or is it better in Luke 21, it really did happen. John was an eyewitness to it. It has his fingerprints all over the story. And I am so, so grateful that this story has been preserved over the ages, aren't you? This story touches our heart unlike any other story. And in this story, as we go through this, we're all in the story. In some part or other, we are all in this story. And so for the next month, on both Sunday, or weekends, Saturday and Sunday and Wednesdays, uh, you're gonna hear from about eight of, our, eight of our pastors, all of our teaching pastors. And uh, you're gonna hear from the younger men, from the older men, and it's gonna be a great month. And we encourage you to go on to the website, do the studies, read through the New Testament over the next 30 to 60 days, be familiar with it, and begin thinking about your own story of that, what you would share with someone about Jesus. And begin praying for opportunities the Lord might give to you where you can share your story. And so I was asked uh, and privileged to, to start this series. And so the challenge was, Lonnie, go and 
What story stands out to you? I actually picked two. This was my first choice. And I'm glad I have a chance to share the story with you. So there's four reasons why I picked this story. First of them, first one, is that it shows us a picture of the Father. In John chapter one, John writes, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as you drop down through chapter one, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld him. We saw him, we ate him, ate with him. Uh, We did life together with him. And we are sharing this, it says in John 20, 21. I'm sharing these things so that you too might believe that Jesus truly is who he says is, that he is the Christ, he is the son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. And in this story, we see (laughs) the love of the father in an incredible way. Jesus said he didn't do anything if the father wasn't in it. And when you begin understanding how Jesus operated, he sought his father every morning. And essentially, he, he would say, Lord, what would you, Father, what would you have me to do today? And when you start looking at that, your perspective begins to change. And you look at the woman at the well, and you realize that Jesus had an assignment that day. Son, I want you to go to Samaria. You're going to head up to Galilee eventually. But instead of going the normal way, I want you to go through Samaria and try to get there right around noon because there's somebody there I want you to meet. There's somebody there who's going to be very thirsty and she needs to have what you have to offer. The time that he's in Capernaum and somebody is lowering a man through the roof was there by his divine appointment. He just happened to be there at the time when a woman who was so ill that no doctor could save that she would be nearby, that she could touch and she could find relief. It's just not a coincidence that the lepers were there. Every story that you see about Jesus is by God's divine appointment where people need to see the love of the Father. And this is what you see in this story. This story, Jesus is not surprised at. They did not catch him off guard. He was waiting for this to happen because he had a meeting with somebody who desperately needed a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, who definitely needed to come out of darkness into light. And the Father sent his son to a woman who desperately needed life, desperately needed to be brought out of her life of shame and be given newness and hope. Jesus said, I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commands me on what to say and how to say it. The Father's always looking for those who are lost, for those whose hearts are completely his. His mercies are new every morning. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. His heart moves to the brokenhearted. And for any of you who are watching, he's not against you. He loves you. He beckons you. He is the one who's looking for the lost sheep. He is the one who's looking for the lost coin. He is the father who's waiting for the son to come home. He's waiting for every one of us to come to him. And that's what we see here in this story. Jesus shows us the way of the father. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. We have a picture of the father and when we watch Jesus. We also, the second reason why I chose this story is because Jesus is definitely on a mission. He tells Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse 17, he says, Nicodemus, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. Many of you have friends, and you might even have family members who thinks that Jesus is all about condemnation and judgment. There is a day that's coming where judgment will take place. But on this time, in this hour, in this time is a day of salvation. 
Paul writes in Romans, uh, sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity. And he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I have come not to condemn, but that the world through me might be saved. I came not to be served, but to, be, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. Jesus was on a mission just to do that. He was on a mission to save. He was on a mission to rescue. He was not on a mission to condemn. If anyone who could do righteous judgment on this day, it was Jesus. Jesus could have cast the first stone. When he said to any of you who was without sin, cast the first stone, he was without sin. He could have justly cast the first stone, but that wasn't his mission. That wasn't his purpose. He came to rescue. He came to save. He was there on that day to rescue a woman who badly needed to be rescued. And even tonight, and tonight, he is knocking on each of our hearts. He is looking for those who are lost. He is beckoning, he's inviting, he's encouraging to all who are far away to come near to him. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And when they hear the shepherds speak, they come running to him. And if you've been hearing him, come running to him. Today is the day, today is the day of opportunity. And Jesus is on that mission that all might be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but all would come to know him. The third reason I picked this story is not only because it shows us the way of the Father and that Jesus is on a mission, but it also shows, this is where it gets personal, the self-righteousness of the crowd. Because I could see myself in the crowd. I could see myself being very judgmental expecting the laws of Moses to be applied. The truth of the matter is, is when you, if you go back and you watch this film, and you can pick it up on YouTube, every one of those men were deeply guilty. Because that experience, that was a trap. That was a planned trap. The only way that a person could be executed according to Mosaic laws is that you have to have at least two witnesses. One person can't come up and says, guess what I know about you? You're an adulteress, you're an adulterer, you need to be stoned. It would, could never happen based upon one. It had to have at least two witnesses. And they say here in John chapter eight, look at it when you, when you see this, it says, <clears throat> Um, the Pharisees brought in a woman. This is verse three. The Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The act of adultery. That means you have at least two men hiding out near that person's bedroom watching everything that led up to her having a sexual relationship with somebody that wasn't her husband. Can you imagine that? This was a planned event. The guy might even been on it because according to Mosaic law, if you're going to stone someone for adultery, you don't stone just the woman. Where's the man? How come he's not there? How come they didn't bring them both in, right? Because it takes two to have adulterous relationship, right? The woman knows that. She, she has realized at this point that she has been caught in a trap and the, and the Jewish leaders, they don't care about her. They're using her to get to Jesus. If we were really to explore seven, they are 
they are angry and they are frustrated and they're trying to trap Jesus. That's what makes the story so real. They knew that he had favor with the tax gatherers and sinners. And if they could somehow cause him to be disfavored amongst the low and the broken, applying righteous laws, or if they side on the other side of it, where it's illegal for them to stone anybody and he sides in that camp, they could go to, they could go to uh, the, uh, Pilate, who was in charge of Jerusalem at that time, and say, we have seditionists here. We have a guy who's try, who is trying to overthrow the Roman government here. They were trying to put Jesus in a box where he had no, no opportunity to win. They really thought they had a good trap. This had been something that they had hatched out over the course of those days of worship. Can you believe that? And every one of those men that you saw was a part of that trap. Every one of those men knew that this was a, was, <clears throat> was a staged event to trap Jesus. And so when Jesus stands up and he looks at all those men that were there, no women were there, he looks at all those men, the leaders of Israel, and he says, Which, whichever one of you is without sin, step up. According to Mosaic law, the two witnesses were the first to throw the stones. They didn't have to be perfect in themselves. They just had to be willing to step up and to say, I saw this event. And then once you throw the stones, everybody else would join in. Not even the two who saw it were willing to step forward. They knew their sin. They knew that this was a messed up trap. They knew everything about it was wrong. And they were holding their heads in shame. And one by one, they walk away. But folks, too many times, we're in the crowd. We're judgmental. We're arrogant. We're self-righteous. We lift ourselves up and said, I've never done that. I don't know why they can't get their act together. I've gotten my act together, how come they can't get together? And there's this pious self-righteousness. And I'll be the first to say to you in shame that too many times I've been in that crowd. That's why the story is so real to me. I don't wanna be there. I wanna be where Jesus is at. That's where he wants all of us to be, is where he is at. fourth reason that I see and why I lean to this story is because the incredible mercy and forgiveness as well as the admonition of a father to a daughter. Because it isn't just Jesus pretending like there's no sin here. Because he does ultimately confront her as a father which talked to his daughter. But you see the wonderful mercy. Look at the last few verses here. Look at verse nine. At, those, at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until, Jesus, only, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightens up and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no, sir. All gone. And then Jesus says, Then neither do I condemn you. 
Folks, that's mercy. That is mercy. That's the loving kindness of a father who looks at my sin and wants to forgive me. I mean, if we were to lay out our sin, we deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation, don't we? When you look at Matthew chapter five, he says, blessed are the broken. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? That means you have nothing left on the inside. That you, that you are broken with your sin. He said, blessed are those who are hungry and who thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek, the ones who know they can't do it themselves. And when you look at those first five verses in Matthew chapter five, there's a message of salvation. The Lord is looking for those who are hungry for him. The Lord is looking for those who are empty. The Lord is looking for those who are brokenhearted. And he's looking tonight. I love the passage where it says, the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are moving throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart might be completely his, that he might strongly support them. And he's looking tonight. He's looking here in this room. He's looking in the venue. He's looking online. He's always looking for those who are lost. He's always looking for those who are far away. He's always looking at our hearts to see if they're ripe for him, that we might have a relationship with him. So I see in this statement, mercy. I see forgiveness. But then he says, as a father would say to his daughter, honey, don't go there anymore. Honey, there's something better for you. What's not said in here, but is implied in this, honey, come follow me. You've been thirsty and you've been drinking in, you've been drinking in a mud hole. I come to give you living water. Come drink. And you'll have a spring of life that will flow out of you. You won't ever have to go here again. Honey, you've been in a dark place. Come out of darkness into light. Let my brightness shine in your life. you'll come out of death into life. You see that? The mercy, the forgiveness, the admonition, the recognition, honey, you don't need to be there. You don't need to go back. Come, follow me. And that's what Jesus is doing tonight. And each of these stories that you're gonna hear over the course of the next month is an invitation to drink from him to enjoy the fresh water he has to give, which is the Holy Spirit. And he says that there will be an abundance. There will be like a living well that will flow out of you. And folks, (laughs) when Christ is alive in you, you see it. Bubbles out. It's like a spring that you can't squelch. It just keeps coming up out of the ground. And when you step out of darkness into light, your eyes light up, your face shines I remember when I came to Christ, I was young. But I read Pilgrim's Progress sometime later. And in Pilgrim's Progress, that was, which was written in the 17, 1600s, it describes a man coming to Christ, carrying this huge sack on his back that just kept getting bigger and bigger, heavier and heavier. And when he touched the cross, the straps fell off his back and his sin rolled away. And that was my experience.
I was set free. My sin was no more. Jesus took it from me. That's what he's offering this woman whose life was full of shame, full of regret. He was offering her freedom. He was offering her life. And he offers that today to each one of us. And so my question as we wrap this up is where are you in the story? And what's your need today? Because we're in the story. Every one of us is in the story. Oh, we're moving out of the crowd into where Jesus is at. But maybe you're the woman whose life needs a touch from Christ. We're gonna pray here in just a moment. My wife uh, and I will be right up here in the front if anyone to come and pray. We'd love to pray. There'll be others that will be here to pray. But we want you to meet Jesus. We want you to come and see Jesus. We want you to meet him. We want you to know him. And I encourage you over the next month that you make it your pursuit to know this wonderful Savior. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And his arms are open wide. He's not far away. He's near. And he's waiting for you to come home. He is. He wants to give you life. He wants to give it abundantly. He wants us to be set free from the things that hold us back. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have here today to open your word, to look at it, to explore it. Grateful, Father, for this story. I'm so grateful, Lord, that it's been preserved through the ages that we could, we could enter into the story. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that you reached down to that woman, said, honey, don't, don't sin anymore. And you invited her to have light and life in her life and following you. And so, Lord, help us to, as, as we engage with you and read these, your, these stories and, and throughout the Gospels, that, Lord, that we would grow in our relationship with you and that, Father, we would be ones who would be eager to share, as Lori has shared, just simply, well, I come meet my Jesus. He's not what you think. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you life and give it abundantly. So Lord, have your way as we leave from here. Would you use us to your glory? In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen.